Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. For anyone who wants to make money and make a difference, grow and leverage your enterprise better, get more done in less time, outsource everything and create your ideal lifestyle. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. It's Rob Moore here. And there's a wildfire raging debate going on right now on Facebook. And sorry, I started it and stoked it. And I thought this would be the perfect opportunity to discuss this from the disruptive entrepreneur's point of view. Now, before we go into what that raging wildfire debate is, what is being a disruptive entrepreneur? This is the second episode in the disruptive entrepreneur series. I intend to make many thousands of these disruptive podcasts. So a disruptive entrepreneur is someone who is quite happy to be a contrarian, shake the status quo, move in a different direction from the masses, even maybe stand against what's been done the normal or the the old way and try and find a better way. If you think about what Uber have done in the in the world of taxi driving, you know, that's pretty disruptive. And if you think a lot of the new renewable tech or green tech, as they call it, which is disrupting some of the, the old ways of creating energy, such as oil. Now, what I don't mean by being a disruptive entrepreneur is being gobby and just, you know, shaking and breaking things up for the sake of it. I've, I've probably been accused of that in the past. But, but disruptive for the sake of being disruptive all it really does is create change for the sake of change. And that creates a lot of attrition. It creates a lot of issues. It creates a lot of costs, a lot of extra overhead on your business. So there's a fine line between disruption and innovation, which is a change where maybe change is needed or being one of the early adopters in a new market that can really add value and service to people. And you get remunerated for that. There's a fine balance between that and just being disruptive and changing and contrarian for the sake of it. Because sometimes as an entrepreneur, it's not best to go and start up a brand new thing where all the cost and all the risk and none of the customers or the, or the awareness is there yet. Sometimes it's better to take something that already exists and improve upon it, much like Apple have done many times. I mean, you know, if you actually know a lot about Apple there, it's quite famous actually that they often take existing platforms and improve them like the the touch screen wasn't their design, for example. And, you know, of course, sharing music, Napster came way before, you know, iTunes did. So often disruption can be taking something that's already there, but you think, you know what, that could be better. I could serve people more with that. I could scale more. I could in, improve it, innovate it. Richard Branson loves going into a tired industry or a monopolistic industry as he sees it, like previously in the airlines or or TV when he went for Sky or when he went for BA. And um, yeah, you need deep pockets for that. They say one of the best ways to become a millionaire is become a billionaire and then have an airline. Uh, I haven't got an airline myself. Um, so that's the that's the, the the crux of what the disruptive entrepreneur podcast is all about. It's it's striving the balance of doing what you love, um, turning your passion into your profession, your vocation into your vacation. Whether you're a startup, whether you're an entrepreneur, because I'm not going to be one of those patronising people who says, "Oh, you're an absolute loser if you uh, have a job." You know, you can be an entrepreneur within an organization, also known as an intrapreneur. You can be an entrepreneur and have the safety net of uh, your employer paying your 
salary. You can be in a startup, which is really exciting and motivational and disruptive and innovative, but you don't own it. You're just part of it. And I, I um, employ many people at one of my companies, Progressive Property, and I believe we have many entrepreneurs who have the kind of security of being an, uh, an entrepreneur, thanks to you know us paying for the, all the overheads and their desk and computers and their salary. But they can be entrepreneurial. They can have a bit of freedom, autonomy. They can make a difference. They can create. They can innovate. They can move fast. And and again, that kind of sums up the ethos of what being a disruptive entrepreneur is and balancing your uh, vocation and vacation. Okay, so let's get to it then. Let's talk about this raging wildfire debate. Now, I've actually got my Facebook uh, page open. And in the first few minutes, I've got more than, let's have a look, or oh, more than 25 replies. Now, if you're not following me on Facebook, it's uh, Rob Moore Progressive. So it's facebook.com forward slash Rob Moore Progressive. And uh, this debate is all about uh, footballer salaries and, and do footballers deserve the salary that they get? And uh, is it unfair? Are they unfairly remunerated when there are other people who work a lot harder? Do they just dive and roll around and kick a ball? And should they really be paid 200, 300, 500,000 pound a week for what they do when they only play 90 minutes of football a week? And, and they, they don't even treat the referee with respect. Or... Are they fairly remunerated for the value that they give the, the planet? And are they fairly remunerated for the service and the sacrifice that they've had to put through their whole life and the scale on which they serve for others and help people have hope and belief and something to follow and something to stand for and be passionate about? And, you know, hey, I'm sure you've got your own thoughts on that, whether it's right or wrong. And I'm going to discuss the ups and downs and the rights and wrongs of that and how it links to being an entrepreneur or a startup, or even if you've got a big business already, you'll get as much out of the Disruptive Entrepreneur podcast if you've got a big business uh, because I um, I run a fairly big enterprise. You know, we're talking tens of millions a year uh, and uh, I have visions of running a global enterprise uh, and I'd love to be a part of that journey with you. Okay, so I'm going to read for you word for word uh, the post I put up and then we're, we're going to discuss some of the comments and uh, by all means go onto the my Facebook page and put your comments in too. It irks me when people moan about footballer salaries. Whether or not you feel that they make their living diving and rolling around and howling the referee, I feel is beside the point. Footballers, in my view, earn exactly what they're worth in relation to how they serve others. The best footballers earn the most. The best footballers entertain the most people. They give people passion, purpose, hope, enjoyment. The best footballers inspire the most people. Uh, they inspire other people to want to play football uh, and maybe be as good as them one day. And, and, and that's kind of the way it is. And let's be honest, the best footballers, there are only a very small percentage of them. And they've made many risks and sacrifices uh, to get to being the best. If being a footballer um, and the salary that they earn isn't deserved, I believe that it will be transient. And I believe that if it really isn't sustainable or deserve what they do, that it will correct itself. So, for example, if a footballer keeps getting injured, then the owners of the club will negotiate their salary down. They might give them a pay-per-play contract to kind of negate the risk and not overpay. Um, so players have therefore got to look after themselves, make sure they don't get injured. If the player doesn't live up to the hype when they have this massive transfer and earn this huge uh, paycheck, then, uh, you know, they didn't play as well as they did in the previous club, then what will happen is uh, they'll be get, get put on the bench and then a year or two later they can get sold to maybe a first division or second division club. Their value will go down, their salary will go down. So they need to continually maintain their level of performance and, and deliver on what they promised at their previous club for their massive salary and their massive transfer fee. 
if they want to sustain that salary and if they want to keep getting fair exchange. Um, otherwise, they'll get dropped. They'll go to the reserves. If they don't behave properly, they'll get dropped. Uh, and, and ultimately, it'll be unsustainable and they'll get found out, which is why I believe they get paid what they get, they deserve. They get paid what they, uh, they get paid fair exchange based on what they've given. And when that goes down, their pay goes, goes down and their fame goes down and the club that they play for gets uh, less good and less good. And if they do better, they move up. And I believe so it is in any sport or, or any work or uh, running a business. So I believe that footballers' salaries are a micro insight of how the world works and how serving, solving and fair exchange, i.e. remuneration that's fair in line with the value that they give. So I believe football's a bit of a microcosm of the, the wider world of business and sales and serving and marketing and, uh, and basically everything. So as footballers get better... Uh, they earn more peripheral deals. So they get sponsorships and endorsements. They, they'll even get paid on social media posts. Now, for the first 15 or 20 years of being a footballer, they might have got nothing for that. But as soon as they become a premiership footballer or they play for Barcelona or Real Madrid, you know, all that reward comes at the end for those 20 years of hard work. Now, um, they have served their industry and they've served their customers, which are all the fans and the people who watch. And, and, and they're now getting their fair remuneration for it. And it's completely linked and this compounds. So, for example, according to the Sport Bible, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo gets paid up to €230,000 per tweet. Now, I believe this is the compounded manifestation of years of hard work, mastery, the level of scale he serves. You know, many millions of people across the world follow him on, on his, in his football and follow him on Instagram and Twitter and whatever else. Uh, and so I believe that's directly linked. And it, were that value to erode, were they, for example, to start being obnoxious to all their fans or were their level of skill of football to go down and therefore they um, people are less inspired by them, then their remuneration would go down. And I think there's been evidence in that. If you look at what happened with Tiger Woods, you know, as he didn't, as he had the, the, the affair thing for sure, but also his quality of golf. As his quality of golf went down, I'm sure the amount that Nike paid him went down. In fact, Nike then sponsored Rory McIlroy. And um, as his world ranking goes down, people talk less about him, they're more interested in him. They're now interested in Rory McIlroy and Jordan Spieth and all the other great golfers. And, and, and I believe that, that, that that's the way the universe works. It rewards you for what you serve to others, give to others, inspire to others, add value to others and the scale of that. But it will take it away very quickly. And it's not a born right or it's not a it's not an even natural distribution. I don't believe the world works like that. It's a, a remuneration based on value and it can grow, but it can easily move downwards. Because people often say to me, well, Rob, if that's the case... You know, how come people can make millions uh, being a scammer or how come they can make it illegally with, I don't know, drugs or war crimes or whatever? Well, the reality is um, I think anyone can do it short term or at least you can do it in maybe not the, the most ethical way short term because you're, the scale of your reputation hasn't grown. But you'll soon get found out and, and you know, look at Enron. Look at Madoff, look at all these people who looked like they were doing well for ages and then they got exposed and then everyone turns against them, society turns against them and their money is forced away from them. And that, that happens in sport. Lance Armstrong, the same thing. You know, look what happened when everything, he was outed, of course. He's got lawsuits, you know, he's got criminal maybe investigations or certainly civil investigations. His sponsors all drop out and don't want to be associated to him anymore. Can't earn as much money in the sport and uh, yeah, and, and everything that was built can, can soon fall. So there, there, I believe, is where the, the fair exchange happens and the, the, all the sponsors cancel their contracts, etc. Okay, so that was, in a sense, the, the thread that I started or the, the discussion that, that I put up. 
Now, I'm going to read to you some of the comments uh, and then we'll discuss some of those comments. So Mark Pocock, thanks, Mark. I, I do some work with Mark. He wrote, uh, did you see that Arnold Palmer still makes $40 million or he made $40 million last year? And Arnold must be, what, 70s or 80s now, I guess, in his age. And he hasn't won a PGA event in 40 years. Now, if you listen to my previous a Disruptive Entrepreneur podcast where I was talking about merging your passion and your profession, you would have heard me talk about building assets to pay you passive income and then you can go and do what you love. Well, you are your asset. Your sponsorships, your endorsements are your asset. Your, the, the assets that you built along the way while you've been doing your profession are also your assets. Now, someone like Arnold Palmer or, or any maybe golfer who's uh, been, been a golfer for many years, they could have endorsements, they could have uh, sponsorships, they may be designing courses, they may have uh, TV contracts as broadcasters. Uh, you know, they'll still be getting paid uh, maybe on, on TV rights, for example, or they might be getting paid royalties. They might have um, uh, coaching businesses. You know, they might set up academies. They might have CD and audio products and be getting paid royalties from those. And, 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 and the, you build that up when you become the best at something, when you serve many people and when you do it for a long time. Now, take someone like Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo. You know, if you look at their story, they'd have been playing football since they were like toddlers and they'd have been doing it 10, 20, 50 hours a week. Uh, it's very famous how David Beckham used to stay after training for hours, practicing that bend it like Beckham free kick. Johnny Wilkinson used to practice for hours and hours and hours a day on his, um, you know, on his conversion kicking. And Tiger Woods so famously uh, practiced more than anyone else, which is always practicing. In fact, uh, Hank Haney, one of Tiger Woods' coaches said, um, you could see that Tiger Woods' career or his ability to stay at the highest level was starting to diminish when he wasn't practicing as much. So all the practice, all the work, all the free kicks, the conversions, the practicing on the putting green, the 2000 putts a day or whatever, that's all an investment in the asset of that individual uh, and individuals who are smart, like Christian Ronaldo, who can get 230,000 pounds a tweet. That's a way of uh, of getting a remuneration or a, an income stream from that asset. And some people go, well, that's just not fair. That's not right. Why should it be when there's these poor, starving people across the world that someone could get £230,000 a tweet? But people forget what they've committed, what they've, uh, you know, what they've given up, what they've sacrificed. Uh, you know, a sports person who's the best, they sacrifice having really nice food. They sacrifice going out on nights out and drinking. They sacrifice a lot of time at school, you know, doing the fun things with their friends because they're practicing all day. You know, many footballers play a football game on Boxing Day, so they can't drink on Christmas Day. Now, they make those sacrifices and those sacrifices aren't seen by the outside world who are just there on, you know, Twitter or Facebook moaning and complaining about it. So that was an interesting reply from Mark that still, 40 years after he won his last event, Arnold Palmer got 40 million a year. Now, in fact, uh, it's reputed that Rory McIlroy is worth half a billion US dollars. And um, I, I roughly calculated that his winnings from his competitions uh, in the last year that he played would maybe be between 20 and 30 million pounds, yet he's worth half a billion 
So where is all the other money coming from? And even if he earned 20 or 30 million a year for the last 10 years, which he didn't, that would still only be half the money he made. So the rest of it is from endorsements. You know, if he writes a book, he'll get passive income from that. He gets his sponsorship deals from Nike and Bose and he gets paid for his tweets and his Facebook comments and and by the way, I'd just like to put a shout out to Rory and thank Rory because um, my son is playing in the World Under Six Championships uh, this year. He's four years old. He's inspired by Rory. And um, Rory actually replied to one of my, uh, well, actually on, my, on his behalf, I posted on Rory's Facebook page and he replied and he sent a, a signed photograph for my son, which I just want to say a great shout out. What a great thing to do. Okay, so let's take another comment. So this is from Steve. Steve says here, I find it sickening that a footballer can earn in a week what an average worker may uh, take 10 years to earn. In the old days, I could understand it a bit better, but the short window of employment doesn't hold water for me, I'm afraid, nowadays. Despite being someone who went to watch football regularly in the 1980s, I've no interest in watching or following it anymore, primarily due to the overinflated salaries, but also the fact that they... Uh, behave like spoiled children in the main and have no respect for the authority of the referee, unlike their rugby counterparts, of course. Uh, but I guess in, in a sense you can't blame the players for taking the money. If people are prepared to spend 30 to £50 every week uh, or two for 90 minutes and a similar amount, if not more, on merchandise, more full them. I'd rather spend £30 to go watch a cricket match where I get a whole day for my money. Now, I think uh, the, the comment that Steve's made there is probably a fair representation of what a lot of people think. Now, if I were to challenge that, I would also agree that you can't blame a footballer for diving around or handballing or whatever, because if they're going to get away with that, uh, and if that's what the referee allows, then that's what they'll do. So th- whatever the governing body of the system is, uh, people will push it to the limits of that governing body. So, you know, when people moan about Starbucks or Google or all these other big companies, Uber, going to uh, having their jurisdiction, their tax jurisdiction in Ireland and paying 4% tax or whatever, and they think it's an absolute scam and it's just awful when there's so many poor people in the world. Well, at the end of the day, if that's what the, if that's the rules that the system creates and, and therein is, an, is a legal a way that they're allowed to do it, you could call it a loophole or you could just call it, you know, that's, that's something that they're allowed to do legally, even if it's a technicality, they're going to do it. Why, why wouldn't they? Uh, that are, uh, people, uh, capitalism is based on self-interest and you have to be able to gain self-interest if you want to gain, you know, some fair remuneration in your view for what you do. Why, why wouldn't you do that? You know, I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with playing within the boundaries and testing the boundaries of what you do. Now, I'm of course, I'm not endorsing cheating. And at the end of the day, uh, people in general will push it in, in terms of the how fair they play by um, how they are how they are governed. And uh, I think that it's been proven with FIFA that the governing of football is maybe not not quite as well controlled as maybe the governing of uh, football. Sorry, of cricket or of rugby. But I, I don't want, don't want to digress. But y- you know. The rules are set by the governing bodies, whether it's a capitalist society or whether it's a, a government or whether it's a, the HMRC uh, rules for um, how you pay taxes. Now, what a smart person does in business is they learn those rules and they push as much as they can within the boundaries of those rules, of course, to get the best benefit. Now, what a lot of people... Uh, in business don't do is learn those. And so they moan when other other people are getting tax breaks in, in other industries or niches, uh, when they're an employee and they're paying tax and national insurance and their personal loans uh, or government personal loans, student loans, they're paying those at source. So, you know, when you're an employee, 
you might earn, say, £5,000, but 2200 might go immediately in tax and a few hundred in national insurance, and you might pay your, your student loans still, and you might earn, be, you might be left with 2600 or 5000 And, of course, that em- employee might moan about Uber or Google only paying 4% corporation tax. Uh, but at the end of the day, the employee has accepted the job and, that, that, you know, they haven't learned another way. They're just accepting that. That was their decision. And again, I'm not knocking either way. It's just you, you've got to take responsibility for your own decisions. And you can either moan at the others for doing it the way they're doing it, or you can learn how they do it. Now, of course, you're probably not going to learn to be a footballer, um, you know, if you're starting again. But uh, maybe you'll learn to run your business enterprise in a more tax efficient way. Maybe you'll learn the rules of tax and you'll learn the, the regulations within your industry and you'll learn the technicalities and you'll learn the loopholes, the legal loopholes. And so in, re- in response to Steve's comment, I'd say maybe the, the footballers who are diving around and, you know, maybe they're not treating the referee with respect. I'd argue that, well, that, that's, the way, that's the way the sport is. It may, it's entertaining, you know, as much as you, you hate to say it, what Diego Maradona did against us in England. <laughs> you know, it, it caused debate. It, it went viral. Uh, and um, ultimately, in, in, in a... In a capitalist environment where you're looking to make profit and in a sporting environment where you're looking to win, uh, those that pursue winning and, and, and balance between pushing the envelope far enough that they could get a strategic advantage, um, but without cheating. Because by the way, if they uh, overly cheat, then, um, then they will be pulled away. The society will reject them and uh, they will get found out. So if you're ever worried about someone pushing the envelope of, you know, how they run their business legitimately or any kind of sportsman who's doing it unfairly, like, like came out with Lance Armstrong or like all the Russian athletes at the moment, they'll get found out in the end. That's the way the world works. That's the way money works. Money flows from those who value it least to those who value it most. Uh, and fair exchange happens where equal value is distributed from the spender to the recipient. So people will no longer go and pay to see sports people who aren't entertaining, who aren't uh, the best, who don't do it within the fair rules of the game. Okay, so anything else we can address here that, you know, maybe it's not fair, the, the money they get. Well, I believe that fair exchange is an, an environment or transaction where you get equal remuneration versus value. So yeah, uh, for example, going to see a football match is pretty expensive, but uh, because of supply, the, the you know the, the economic law of supply and demand, it w- it wouldn't be sustainable, and people wouldn't pay it if it was too much. They'd, they'd, they'd you know they'd vote with their feet. So um, when football ticket prices get too high, uh, then what will happen is the uh, the crowd attendances will go down, and then the the football clubs will have to react and respond, and maybe they'll create different pricing tiers. Um, to to manage their margin, maybe they'll have a few more at the low end, but they'll charge some higher end tickets. They'll put the price up of the the directors' boxes, etc., etc., to pay for the lower tickets. But if if they go too high, they will be forced to reduce them. Otherwise, people won't turn up. But if people keep turning up, the price will keep going up because it's supply and demand. So I don't think we can blame the footballers for that, uh, and I don't think we should forget their sacrifice that they've made. And I think the footballer. The reason I discussed this is because I knew it was a topical subject. But really, the footballer is the analogy for the business 
business owner, for the you know the the violinist or the you know or, or the golfer or anyone who's the best, because people often think that you know the people who are up there at the top, the celebrities, the the musicians, the singers, the people think that it's really unfair that they get unfair amount of money. But money does not just distribute equally or evenly. It's, it's not how money works. It's not how supply and demand works. Supply and demand works that the more demand there is. Uh, therefore, the the price goes up. The lower supply there is, the price goes up relative to the demand. It's not that uh, the distribution of everything is equal. Someone is not going to pay the same amount of money for grass as they are for food, as they are for a yacht, as they are for a Ferrari. It's, it's, it's based on supply and demand. It's based on perceived value. So it's a bit of a delusion, I believe, that things are distributed equally and things should be more fair. And, you know, maybe rugby, rugby players and cricketers should, should get more money because they're more respectful. Well, you know, yes, there's an argument that they're more respectful or whatever, but ultimately that they are in a sport which doesn't serve as many people as what football does. It doesn't scale across the globe like football does. You know, there are a lot of countries where the weather is not right for, you know, for cricket. So you, you can't now... Um, one of the reasons I really wanted to get my son into golf is because I believe that's a sport where it served millions of people. There's apparently something like 20 million people in uh, the US alone that play golf. Now, you know, I might have slightly uh, got that figure wrong, but it's, it's, it's actually in my book, Life Leverage, the exact amount. I did some research. But there's a huge amount of people that play golf. And, you know, if you're going if, if you if you're, if you're to start again, which you have the chance to do, or if you're thinking about what you want to do with your career or your, your enterprise, surely it's smart to do a bit of research to look at if there's a market. You know, are you going to go and sell paper clips or are you going to go and create a cure for cancer or are you going to be an information marketer? Surely it's smart to do a bit of research, look at your competition, look at the remuneration value, look at if it's scalable, look at is it global or is it just regional? Uh, are there billions of people who it serves or are there just a handful? And of course, most people, when they start playing football, they don't think about that. They just want to play football. But linking back to the uh, first a disruptive Entrepreneur podcast. And many footballers are merging their passion with their profession, their vocation, their vacation. And, uh, you know, and they're serving a lot of people. Okay, right. So let's have another look at a few more comments. So this one's from Charlie. I want to thank Charlie for this comment. He said, the money in football comes mainly from the TV rights. Broadcasters will pay many millions for the right to show games because many millions want to watch them. Um, and, you know, many millions pay the paying subscriptions like Sky and BT Sport, as well as advertising revenues. The TV rights money gets divided between the sports associations and the teams, which then use this revenue along with other secondary sources of income to pay the players. There's clearly nothing, nothing morally right or wrong with any of this. The serving part, I guess, is 90 minutes of entertainment to take people out of the problems of their daily lives. But that's not the main point. The main point is that it's a captive market. If you support one team and are passionate about it, you will do everything you can to pay to watch them play. And uh, I think that's a really insightful comment. Uh, the, the, there's a lot of people who project moral issues onto or ethical issues onto money, onto vocations, onto things like footballer salaries or, you know, really high salaries for CEOs or, or pop stars or whatever. But it's not a moral or ethical issue. It's a supply and demand issue. It's a serving issue. It's a, it's a does it serve more people? And, and how it serves them is kind of not really relevant. You know, in, in our world, our own insular world, uh, you love what you love and don't love what you don't love. And all the things you love, you think is really high value and, and worth paying for and, and a great service. And everything you don't agree with or love or you stand against, you feel, well, no, that's not worth any money and that's not fair. But 
the reality is there's someone else who does see value in that. You know, arms is a great example. Obviously, it's a it's an immoral or amoral thing. And selling arms, many of us could argue, is just really fundamentally wrong. But the fact of the matter is there is supply and demand there. There is a market there. And let's not forget, if there wasn't an arms business, then all of the safety that we take for granted and all of the, you know, our governments that protect us and make sure that we're not overthrown by other, other governments would disappear. And we'd ultimately get overthrown and raided and um, taken over by a, a different uh, ruling faction. So, you know, there's a purpose for these things that are often forgotten. And again, they're, they're topical and they create a lot of polarised emotion. But I believe this is the nature of life. I believe this is the nature of business and, and entrepreneurship. So there's this huge amount of money. There's these billions paid for TV rights, which are, which are distributed to the FA and the clubs because there's a demand for it. And the most valuable asset to a football club are the best players. And that's why the best player gets paid £500,000 a week. And there can be someone in the squad who gets paid £10,000 a week. And again, you can argue that that's not fair. But the best player is worth that amount more to the club, to the revenues. Because people don't come and pay to see the, you know, the, the, the number 25 in the squad player. They pay to play to see Gerard or... Ronaldo or Messi or Suarez or whoever. I'm still bitter about Suarez leaving Liverpool, being a, a Liverpool fan. But anyway, that's a, uh, I'm sure I'll get lots of messages of abuse for that. I, but that, that doesn't make me a bad person. But the reality is, you know, look, look at what happened to Liverpool when Suarez left. You know, all of a sudden they nearly won the league and then they're fourth, seventh, wherever. So, um, yeah, you know, look at the value that they give. So I think it's a great point there. It's not a moral issue. It's, it's a supply and demand, a, a business transaction and a fair exchange issue or, or debate. Uh, Nick, thanks, Nick, for your comment. Nick said that football is a massive business. Players are the product. If the club wants the player, they pay the wages. There's no one holding a gun to their head, forcing them to, to offer to pay a player £100,000 a week or more. And let's face it, no one would turn down that kind of money for, a, for doing a job they love. And I think that's a great point. Ultimately, the player is the product of an industry. And uh, the, the result of being in that industry, which cycles a lot of money, the velocity of money in football is very fast compared to other industries. Uh, the flow and the circulation of money is vast, you know, 100 million pounds for, for just a player. The agents make money. The agents' families get their mortgages paid and the food on their table. And, you know, think of all the people that are, uh, get value in that transaction, whether, whether you agree with it morally or not. So if you're going to choose a niche, a business or an industry, or if you're going to grow your enterprise, surely it's smart to look at which industry is a bit like football, where the demand is global, where the remuneration is huge, where you can add other income streams, such as your endorsements, your TV shows, your book, um, you know, um, royalties, etc. Surely it makes sense to think like that and, and put your feelings aside for the moral or the ethical issue uh, and just put your thoughts on the scale of the um, reach of, of the model or the industry and the service to others, how you serve others. Ultimately, if you put yourself in a position of service and serve others and entertain others and give value to others and give people hope, give people vision, give people a belief that they can do it, do give people something to believe in, to fight for, to live for, then you'll be handsomely rewarded and remunerated. And who knows, you might even make £500,000 a week or £230,000 for a tweet. 